from Raw and Radical. This is On Display, a podcast about extraordinary women in the arts, their true stories and inspiration. I am Maren Brodbeck and every episode features a conversation with one great woman in the arts or music. There are dialogues about real-life challenges, exploring what it means to be a woman in creativity. Barbara Pola, welcome to the show. You are a gallery owner. Your gallery is Analytics Forever. Uh, you are a curator, a writer, a medical doctor. Uh, you are the daughter of a painter, Anne-Marie Imhoff. You are a mother of four daughters. You went to Harvard Medical School. You worked at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and you worked at the Cantonal Hospital in Geneva. You were a research director at the French Institute of Health and Medical Research in Paris, an author of many articles and books and publication and uh, also on medical research. You were a member of the Geneva City Council and a Geneva Canton deputy for six years and finally a member of the National Parliament. You did so many things. Uh, you started your own gallery in 1991 uh, to represent contemporary artists. You always did a lot of collaboration with Art Critics Curator. And you started in 2008 a uh, long time collaboration with Paul Arden. You also teach on uh, art and fashion and how they link at the French Fashion Institute and the head in Geneva, which is the School of Art and Design in Geneva. Tell me about all this. Tell me about how you managed to jump from one career to many careers, actually. Well, I think what drives me is uh, the desire. And um, I think that rather than jumping from one career to another, it's actually like reading a book. And um, I never quit what I was doing before because I was bored or I felt I'm done with it, but just because the next page seemed more, you know, exciting, more desirable. And so I just turned a page with never any regret because there was this new page open for me. And um, yeah, I have... Um, some energy in me, <laughs> uh, which is this desire for life and passion for uh, discovering a lot of curiosity. And uh, yeah, still today, I have the desire to do many things. And I just moved the gallery, which has been open now for 28 years. And when I opened the gallery, I did three days of openings. And I said, to everybody, these are the first three days of the next 28 years. So, yeah. you know, many projects, many desires to do, to do more. On the other hand, you know, I have the great privilege to have a long life. I'm now 69 and um, I did all these things one after the other. I mean, I didn't do everything at the same time. In the um, 40s, that was, I think, the most intense and most difficult time because it's a time for women, I feel, where you cannot let go one or the other thing. The girls were small. I couldn't tell them, okay, please wait for five years now. I'm busy with my yeah. job and the politic and the gallery. 
um, you know, they were there and I had to take care of them the, to the best of what I could. And at the same time in my career, there was nothing that I could say, okay, let's postpone this for five years. And I think for many women, this is the case in the 40s because you have all this energy, but you have to do everything at the same time. Yeah. And um, so that were the, those were very intense years. Not that now they are less intense, but it's another kind of rhythm. I feel uh, that now I have the time, uh, which is yeah, sort of paradoxical excellent. because, you know, I'm 69. You could think, okay, now, no, I have to hurry because, no, I feel I have the time to do one thing after the other, even if I must say, I feel that I work more and more. I feel that more and more, you know, I work every day, I work every week, I haven't taken vacation for at least 10 years now. So I feel I do more, but there is another kind of relation to time. Yeah, there's another flow. But yes. I, I really like this idea of uh, turning the page and following your desire. This is This is so precious. Yes, and it's, it's really exactly that. Um, and, you know, I've been criticized a lot, uh, especially when I was in politics, because when you are in politics, you're like a public person and people look into your personal life oh, sure. and very often criticize you in politics through actually things they see of their personal lives. So I've been very much criticized for doing too many things. But actually in my life and in my brain and in my thoughts everything is connected you know like i look at art through what i've learned in politics i'm still i'm always say when people ask me who are you i say i am a medical doctor i said i did research i did politics i did this and that yeah. but i am a medical doctor because there is something about uh, being a doctor which is in the soul it's not only in the the knowledge and the practice but it's in the soul and the love for the others and the love for the body and you know a way to um to be interested in caring and also to be very aware of the presence of death all the time you yeah. know when you're a medical doctor um death is always nearby even if Obviously, the goal is to go for life and, and for health, but it's there. Yeah. And it's there also in art. Excellent. So you also work in Paris a lot, where you collaborate with other galleries. Yes, I actually, I love France very much for its culture, essentially. Yeah. And... Um, I love Paris as you love a person. You know, I love Paris because there are all these ghosts. I mean, I walk in the street and I, I think of Balzac and I think of Les Miserables and I think of all these women in World War One who, you know, were working and I, I like, I see them. Yeah. I, I, they yeah. are. Paris is vibrating of all these ghosts. And so I actually work in Paris for two major periods. The first one was when I was a, a research director at INSERM at Faculté Cochin. And then the girls were little, so that was also very intense because I, 
you know, I traveled all the time to be with the girls, yeah, to be yeah. to work in Paris. When I was in Paris, I did working days of 20 hours, you know, to shorten the week to be with the, the girls again in, in Geneva. And that was in the 90s. And then when I was elected to the parliament, uh, the national parliament as an MP, I sort of quit the research, you know, I turned that page. But now when I decided that was uh, 2007, eight, I decided really to concentrate on writing and art. And yeah. then I wanted to come back to Paris because that's where I have most of my intellectual contacts, that's where I collaborate with curators, poets, writers, you know, thinkers. So I gave it a long thought because I didn't want to open the 789th gallery in Marais. You know, in Paris, nobody expected me to open a gallery there. And yeah, then yeah. I had this idea actually that everybody said but Barbara you're crazy you're nuts this is never going to work but I had the idea to do exhibition in the galleries of other galleries together with them yeah. and actually it worked very well I mean uh, oh, since 2011 I'm now doing this and you know I'm just very fair play and obviously in order to collaborate that's what you have to to be otherwise yeah, it doesn't absolutely. work but like this year um, a, a gallerist I never had worked with called me and said uh, you know I would like to do uh, something about Greece and I saw that because that's the third part of my life now which is concentrated on to art on to writing but then the, I have a Greek project so she had seen about that on internet and we are having an exhibition now together since uh, September you know and it really works that way. And um, then I started also curating. And so things mix. And in my brain, you're, you know, the idea of turning the pages is that you don't forget the previous page. It's still there. And all the time I'm getting, you know, from things I have done previously, ideas and understandings and instruments to think about what I'm doing today. Wow. So when you decided to open your gallery, what was your aim? What was your goal? Did you also wanted to follow your desires and show the work you wanted? Or did you have a, another specific goal with it? Because throughout your medical uh, work, you always fought for freedom. And freedom uh, is a big theme for you. Freedom is an absolute major red threat through through my life. Whether you know my political involvement, whether what I ha the way I live, what I have been trying to transmit to my daughters in my writing. So that's really a red threat through through my life. On the other hand, I've been working in general in my life a lot uh, starting from intuition yeah. and only later thinking and looking at what I've done and trying to understand why did I do that and so I remember that the first time I told my husband at the time that I wanted to open a gallery this was just before we were leaving for Harvard I had a grant for two years and he was following with already three children 
And I said, you know, when we come back from Harvard, I would like to open a gallery. And he was so upset with me. He said, you're <laughs> totally crazy. You understand you have this grant to go to Harvard. Now we're going all with you. We're doing all of this. And when you come back from Harvard, you want to open a gallery. You're nuts. And so I... I Okay, I said, okay, okay, let's go to Harvard. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, you know, we came back and I worked very hard in research and medicine, science, and opened the gallery. Um, and so it really started from, uh, as you said, it started from a, a desire. I felt life in medicine and in family. Yeah wasn't big enough. I wanted more. I needed to include a more poetic aspect and a more politic aspect. And uh, today, I like the poetic being obviously art and then the politics. And today, I like to talk about poetics, which is like a fusion of poetics and politics, which is what I'm trying to do in my poetic writing and also in the gallery of course with the art I'm showing yeah wow nice story you are the author of many many books and one of them is called femme or norme which could be translated into what would you say out of the norm woman um, women out of frame. I like the idea of the frame because it relates to art. I don't know how it sounds in English, but I, I think I would like that. And by out of, you know, norm, I don't mean actually exceptional women. Yeah. I mean women who have the courage at the certain point to take a step outside of the box, to go out of the box that the society all the time wants to put us in, you know, out of the limits. And this is not something you can do just once in your life. It's like an everyday discipline yeah. to really look at yourself, to listen to yourself, to go into yourself and to try to understand who am I and what do I really want and try every day to do something that brings you closer to yourself. It can be something very tiny, like wearing red as you wear today. You know, this is something that I've heard so many times, you shouldn't wear so much red. But if you feel that, you know, red is your color, hmm. just go out of the frame that's given to you and wear red. And then it can be big things, obviously, um, also going yeah. out of norm but it's like making um you know outcome every day to be closer to yourself and make your own norms not following those that the society or education or the others want to put you in and you use a term for this you use the autonormy yes um yeah That's maybe also needs some kind of a translation. Yes. I well, <laughs> autonomy is, you know, in, means independence, but actually etymologically, it means you make your own laws. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, me as a politician and an engaged citizen, I follow the laws of the country I'm in. And if I don't like them, either I try to change them or I leave that country. Um, so I'm, you know, 
uh, following this. And so what I really wa don't want to follow is the norms, uh, that, which are neither laws nor bylaws, but really it's like the, what the society tells you to do, but with no um, legal ground, just because you know you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, you should be clean, you should be good, you shouldn't laugh too loud. How many things times I, uh, have I heard that? No, I want to laugh. I want to sing, even if I sing very badly. I mean, I want to be myself, I want to be free and tell, and I want all the women to, you know, be able to do the same thing, because whoever has limited freedom, it's actually limiting my own freedom. So it's really something I would like to share, that we every day look at ourselves in, in the mirror and are able to say, okay, what do I really want? Who am I really? And that's autonomy. Which are my norms? You, you don't have to throw them all away, which is one way. Say, okay, no norms. No, but take your norms as the norms. Yeah. This is a subject that is for me so curious because we, it's almost like with so many of us, our society has been following blindly without putting it in question, without um, really thinking and uh, really bringing awareness to this subject. But yes. our entire societies, all of them, work with this principle of following the status quo. Yes. And you see, for women, one of the basic norms is to have children. Yeah. I mean, and women who have children, the, nobody ever asked me, but why do you have children? Yeah. Now, I have four daughters, and I'm very happy about that. My oldest daughter doesn't want children. So, in this respect, she's totally out of norm, out of frame, you know, out of what society expects from her. And uh, actually, as her mother, I never had a conversation with her about that, because I felt, although I... I'm totally fine with it. Me, as her mother, mother of four, I talk to her and I say, why don't you want children? I didn't feel it was a good idea. But when I wrote the book of Norm Women Out of Norm, then I talked to her as an intellectual who's asking for a testimony by a woman. And I asked her, could you write for me the chapter on why you didn't want children? And she wrote this most beautiful and intelligent and clever letter. And indeed, she says, you know, when you don't have, don't want to have children, when you want to go out of that norm, then you have to ask yourself, you have to ask questions, you have to question the, you know, the negative effect, the negative, um, how can I say, return the society gives you, and to make sure that this is really what you want. Mm. And, you know, it, this exactly goes along with what you were saying, the questioning. We don't questioning the fact that you know, society expects from us that we do children. But when you, we want to go out of the norm, then the questions arrive and questions are always so important and yes. so essential. And we should ask them every day to ourselves and to, you know, our, those we love. Yeah, because when you do go out of the norm, then you have everybody else's question yes especially in that subject yes so when are you gonna have babies when is this when is that 
I think it feels like people almost ask them by automatism without truly thinking about what they're saying. Yes, and there is also the sense of culpability that the society imposes to anybody who wants to go out of norm. And the example of uh, not having children is a very good example because every woman, I'm sure, who listens to us, who's over 40, who decided not to have children, has experienced the sense of culpability that the society imposes mm. onto them. And whenever you go out of the norm, you know, whatever norm it is, you know, then yes, the questions arrive and they are never like, ah, oh, wow, why do you do this? But like, mm, but why do you do that? Yeah. You know, so it's important to ask questions to ourselves to be, yeah, as confident as possible with what we do when we do something out of norm. Yeah. <laughs> It's very interesting for me, uh, this, this entire phenomenon of just following what's there. Yes. Uh, and so you, you really believe that um, when every woman starts to really follow their own norm, this is how we change society? This is one of the way that we are going to change society. And, uh, you know, th all these processes are slow and long-lasting processes. And yeah. I'm just, you know, happy to add my little stone to this path towards changing the society. I think another um, thing that I really would like to change is the um, fact that we always... Uh, think of girls as potential victims and we think of boys as potential predators yeah. and I think this is something you have a girl and a boy and I feel in the education of boys if we would stop putting them in this position of the potential predator but tell them that you know they are they have uh, their sexual organs not to kill or to hurt or to whatever but to give pleasure and life and to you know give them back this idea that they are life givers then mm. we would uh, remove the idea of the immediate victim mm. from the girls and this is really something i would like to to change you know when the girls go out for the first time in their early teens every mother says you know be careful mm. but when you say that that means that she is already a potential victim instead of saying enjoy i mean what's more beautiful than meeting someone else meeting the yeah. other and you shouldn't be careful about that you should just you know And then maybe be careful and take good care of who you okay, okay, you know. We had like a ball with condoms at the door, you know, when they went out. Yes, you know, there are things you have to be careful about, but not about meeting the other. Yeah, it's true. And it must be very strange for young men, young boys growing up, hearing stories about abuse and rape and, and, and this, and, and they are always the, the, the threat as men. Yes. That's yes, they are, you know, they are put in this position and even more now of, you know, the culprits. They, yeah. are, they are the bads. On the other hand, 
we cannot ignore that in France today, three women every week die because their partner killed them at home. Yeah. I mean, we cannot ignore that. But I think that the way is not to heal this, the way is not to put the boys in the position of potential predators. It's at the opposite to, uh, you know, to put them in the position of caregiver, of life giver, of love giver. I think this is a much more potentially um, healing way than the way to tell them, look, you are the predator. Yeah, totally interesting. To bounce on this, you have a new book. <laughs> that, how would you call it? Is, it? is it the continuation of the book we just talked about? Uh, from out of norm or is it because it's more of a study yes it's a little different it's a more academic book where um, among others I review it's called the new feminism singular because I try to you know include all existing feminism in this book and even give name to feminisms that I see that exist but don't have a name like the feminisms of artists and um, yeah it's more of a of a study and a review but then again at the in the third part of the book I I start with questioning the violence we were yeah. just talking about yeah. and then I review all these feminisms and then in the third part I talk about again poetry and eros and the the, the power that gives what Storer calls the power from inside as opposed to the outside power um, yeah it is of course a continuation and it's also it gets me back to when I started as a feminist I mean my my first feminist paper that I wrote was called um, I was uh, a little over 30 and it was called the silent woman and the hero I was at Harvard and I went to a meeting about conciliation of family and professional life, which of course interested me with my three kids and my research at Harvard. And there was this man with his baby, and it was beautiful. I mean, and he explained that, um, you know, his wife was at a very tricking point in her research. So, you know, he took the time to take care of the baby, and everybody was like, wow, and wow, and how wonderful and I was like okay come on I mean a, a, a woman comes here with her baby and says she wouldn't even come and say she's taking care of the baby yeah. so this is what I meant by the hero you know and the silent uh, woman and so um, I started <laughs> my investigations by comparing women doctors in Switzerland and in the US and my feminism developed over time you know it's really also something that uh, started very early because I was confronted uh, you know as a doctor as a, uh, working in the university in politics with a lot of machism I mean when I went to my mentor at the time to say I'm pregnant for the first time um, I was already uh, in a very good position in the hospital in the university hospital in Geneva and he told me oh what a pity it looked like 
you could have had a nice career. Nice. Okay? So, I mean, when you're confronted to these kind of things, obviously you develop a feminist approach, yeah, but this yeah, yeah. really developed over time. And I think this book on the new feminism is like, uh, um, you know, bring, getting all of this together and it's like uh, making a point. That's where we are. That's where I am today. Mm. And uh, now I'm going to write other things such as my erotic poetry which is another way to nice. be a feminist. Yeah, can't wait for that one. <laughs> so this book is divided in three parts. So the first one is really a study... About the violence, yeah, trying to understand why is the... Uh, I don't understand, you know, why this is. So when I don't understand something, I like to put it in words and try to find, you know, issues. We need to find... How how are we going to get out of that? Yeah. And in order to find that, we have to understand where does it come from. Yeah. And then the second part is all these 15 different feminisms. And then the third part is like trying to put all of this together. So you saw that there is a true liberation of the speech of the woman through this. Yes and no. I think that there is a real liberation of the speech of women for a number of issues and notably the the violence yeah. um i'm i don't think there is a lot of you know that every women's issues are actually talked about and notably i think that you know love and desire and uh you know, the eros of women is something that's, I don't want to say taboo, it's too much, but it's something you don't talk about these days. Yeah. And this is also why I like to combine my studies on feminism together with writing erotic poems. Mm. Because, you know, I think we shouldn't forget, we shouldn't hide the fact that... Uh, we have a body and this body desires and uh, and it's beautiful and it's about life and 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 love of the other and you know this is less heard today so yeah. i'd like to free that speech also yeah because if we follow your path and you were very successful in everything you started and everything you did by following your desires. So this is a good, you are a good proof that it works. I don't feel that way. And I wouldn't say this exactly, first of all, because I think success is a very threatening concept. I don't like the concept of success. I don't think I succeeded. Um, success is most often something that the others uh, define for you. You know, yeah. the society again decides whether you're successful or not. As an artist, what is success? It's like doing what you have to do. And following desire, yes, there yeah. I fully agree. And it would be my absolute advice, like follow your desire all of us, we should follow our desire um, with a lot of thoughts, a lot of thinking and refining what really our desire is. Mm. And sometimes I feel that 
success is maybe the real success, which is your own measurement of your own well-being yeah. rather than success. I think it's much more important. So if you define, if I define my own success as my well-being, maybe it's exactly the opposite of what others would say about success. You know, I'm not the successful gallerist in the way others would define it. I'm not the, you know, and I think also the concept of the superwoman, like this woman who succeeds, it's a completely wrong concept. So for, let's forget about success. Let's think about, you know, your desire and well-being. And I mean, we are so, at the same time, this is the most we can do, but it's also so little. Just yeah, yeah. do what we have to do. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we need another word. Yes. Because because yeah, success has a a link to to really to, to money, to being money. you know, being rich, being visible to visibility. Yeah. And the outer normie is actually very often the opposite of visibility. Yeah. It's something that you do for yourself very discreetly. Maybe nobody sees it, but you know you have done a step out of norm. Yeah. And that's to me yeah. I think so much more important than any success measured by visibility or by money. Yeah. So we need another word. Yes. Because it is successful. Yes. <laughs> yes. But we do need we another need word. We need some kind of other word. Yes. So we need to invent one, I guess. I want to just bounce back on, on your previous book that we've mentioned because you talk about uncanny energy as an energy that is um, vibrating, uh, that is present. And I, I wanted to see if you could uh, talk a bit about that. Yes, I think it's the energy you get, among others, when you do a coming out. And actually, the idea to get out of norms is to do a coming out that may be public, that may be just, again, with yourself. But you know, the moment you take this step to say, this is actually what I am, um, it's very frightening. It's like, you have a lot of anxiety, you do the step, you go out, and then suddenly you have all this incredible energy yeah. that comes to you. And uh, I am, I'm sure as an artist, it's all that every time that you do something new that you haven't done before, you know, you like go out of your comfort zone uh, because that's what it is. You take this step yeah. and it's very frightening and you're hesitating and you feel the threat and you take it and, oh, you know, all the energy you actually uh, 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 gave to do the step comes back to you and much more. And you're radiating because, you know, from it shows this energy really shows in the eyes in the body and people can feel it and it's totally uncanny you know? yeah and i love it i love to see that in artists in women in friends in men in others you know uh, it's it's something brilliant it's like also the revolution of love when you decide that you know you love this person at a, and at a certain point you take the risk of saying yes you know i love her or i love him and you take this step 
out of your comfort zone because it's very threatening to admit uh, love. But then you get this fabulous energy and, and that indeed uh, radiates. Yeah, beautiful how you say it and how you describe it. Well, thanks. This is really cool. Uh, any conclusion? Anything you would like to say for other women artists? I would love that you all look at this fabulous picture of Leisha Evans that has been taken now, I think, two years ago. She's a black woman um, when they were all the manifestations against the police in the States. And a photographer has taken this fabulous uh, picture of her, which actually is in my latest book, The New Feminism. And you see this beautiful women, thin, in this dress that's open on the side, like mine today. Um, and she just stands. She is standing there so graceful and so potent. And in front of her, there are hundreds of policemen in their heavy uniform, and they're stepping back. Mm. And you see, in on the picture, you see the movement, the movement of yeah. the, this yeah. policeman stepping back. He's like, why is he stepping back? Because she is so graceful and powerful. She doesn't show off anything. She is. She exists. She is there standing in her full dignity, in her full fragility, completely assuming her fragility. And then this, the fake power, the, you know, is stepping back. Yeah. And this would be my final message to all the women who are listening to this podcast is that we all can be her. We can be Leisha Evans if we are standing in our fragility and assume it in our dignity and in our full power. And, you know, we are, we exist, we are beautiful and we change the world. On the website of your gallery, under statement, there is a phrase that I really like that says, analytics forever is constantly in motion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I even gave, you know, the gallery is called Analytics Forever, and now I added Analytics Forever Moving Art. And I love the word, uh, the word moving in English. It's so beautiful because it means you're in movement. I'm in Geneva, I'm in Paris, I'm in Athens, I'm everywhere in the world where, you know, like, well, sort of. I'm certainly moving, but moving also means it's moving, it gives me emotion. And the art I'm showing, I have the privilege to show, is always first and outmost the art that moves me, mm. mo brings emotions mm. to me. And so the movement is the life, it's the desire to go elsewhere, and the moving is also being moved inside, being moved by the, what the artists do, but what the others the way they look at the world and they talk to me about the world and they show me the world and I'm deeply moved and that again brings me into movement so it's this circle again of the movement and the uncanny energy and and that circulates in my life thanks to the artists and what you what they do 
And that's beautiful. I am a woman, a human utopian musician. I am a mess, a mess the French Listening.